Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Exploring Inclusion in Education and the Workplace. I will talk with Dr. Megan Pollock, who is the founder of Engineer Inclusion, a TEDx speaker, author, and recipient of the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. Through her company, Megan helps people intentionally and systematically engineer equity and inclusion into their classrooms and organizations. She provides teaching, consulting, and development services related to engineering, education, and equity to industry, non-profit organizations, and educational institutions. Uh, Megan, welcome to our podcast series. It's wonderful to have you here, and thank you for finding time to talk to us about how to engineer inclusion in the workplace and education. And perhaps if you could start by sharing with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to founding your company, Engineer Inclusion. Yeah, thanks, Natasha. I'm really happy to be here with you, and I'm grateful for the invitation. Yes, and my name is Megan Pollock, and I am an engineer turned educator. Um, A little over a decade ago, I was working for Texas Instruments, and then I switched from widgets to workshops and really never looked back. And so as I began my doctoral work, you know, the goal as I began studying was to transform the culture of engineering. And I spent uh, most of the last decade really focused on training educators on how to create equitable and inclusive learning environments for students, specifically within STEM pathways. And um, but yet uh, my goal was to change the culture of engineering. And so a few years ago, I launched the brand of my business, Engineer Inclusion, which is my, my primary company. And, and so while I still work with lots and lots of educators across the country and in some other countries I've worked with, um, while most of my clients are educators and educational institutions, I am starting to finally get some more industry-based clients to address some of the work-based cultures um, on how do we intentionally engineer equity and inclusion into environments. You know, we've spent, you know, a lot of the movement around, you know, diversity in STEM has been how do we get more diverse people in? And while that may have been initially sort of my goal, what I found along the way is that diversity is generally already there. We could certainly recruit more women Mm -hmm. and people of color into these fields, but I don't want to just put more people into toxic environments, right? Like I want to create environments and cultures, whether in the classroom, whether at the university, whether in pre-college or in the workforce, where minoritized and traditionally excluded people feel valued, included, affirmed, and that they belong, mm-hmm. um, ultimately, so that they can succeed. And so that's really the heart of, of my work. And I, I feel very grateful that I get to do this for a living. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's really challenging. Um, and it's it's been a great journey for me. Megan, thank you. That's very interesting. You know, and I'd like to zoom in on uh, the important concept of belonging to a group, to a team. And I think for some people, you know, we sort of know generally the term, but sometimes we might not really understand what does it mean, what does it feel like to actually belong and what might be the red flags that point to the fact that you're not really 
fitting into this particular team, say, in a workplace. Do you mind maybe to walk our listeners through a little bit understanding what does it feel like to belong? Well, I'd encourage the listeners, wherever you are right now, mm-hmm. like, think about to yourself, like, what does it feel like to belong? Like, to truly feel like you belong. There's a big difference between us as you know, individuals who are sort of forcing belonging, right? You know, I am stubborn and independent and I will do anything in my power to fit in and to belong when I want to belong. And that is certainly a kind of belonging. But so often in that kind of forced belonging, I have to lose a part of myself. I don't always get to show up as my true authentic self. I have to sort of adapt and assimilate to fit into those spaces. And most often that's really what happens to people who are on the margins and environments where they're, you know, not from the dominant group is that we will be so intentional about doing whatever we can to belong. And what happens is we often do this unconsciously. It's a survival tactic, right? It's a survival tactic to try to fit in, to try to survive. And we often don't even realize the ways in which we lose ourselves. I love to think of the imagery of like a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. And so if you were like jamming square peg round hole over and over and over again, like eventually you might be able to fit. It might feel a little wonky. Um, And you might have (laughs) shaved off parts of yourself in that process and you might belong, but are you still your true authentic self? And that's really different than structural belonging. And so structural belonging is what I work with educators and industry professionals and leaders to try to do. How do we change Mm -hmm. the cultures and the climates and the environments so that people can show up? as their selves, whether you're a square peg, a triangle peg, you know, whatever shape peg you are, that there is a whole that is your shape, right? And that mm-hmm. you get to show up as your whole self. And what happens when we show up as our whole selves, when people, you know, experience true belongingness, they feel valued, they feel affirmed, they have greater, there's greater retention, there's greater creativity, there's greater, um, less turnover, right? And, you know, when we think about the great resignation and some of the implications of so many people leaving their jobs, I think so much of this is a function of belonging, right? A function of the culture and climate of workplaces. If people realized, especially when so many jobs went to working from home during the course of the pandemic, they realized that they didn't have to perform in the same kinds of ways that they did in the workplace. And I think that there was a great realization <laughs> of like, hey, like I am not myself. Like I want to find something else, some other space where I can show up and be myself. Because what happens for those of us who are trying to to fit in and to belong is it becomes a shadow job. Mm-hmm. It's the shadow job that literally jams our cognitive bandwidth that And it reduces our capacity to be present and function in other kinds of ways because we're just trying to survive in a space that doesn't match our identity. And so that's really what I think of when I think of belonging. And, you know, for me, what it feels like to belong is to feel like, again, I get to show up as myself. I get to be um all the fun parts of me. Um, it doesn't mean I get to show up as a jerk, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that, does, that doesn't, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, everybody that's not should the kind of show up that yeah. we want, right? But we want to mm-hmm. show up as kind, inclusive, and, and equitable kinds of people. And we want to make space for, for all identities. 
So I guess sometimes, you know, because I hear of the term imposter syndrome, sort of feeling like you shouldn't really be in this group, you shouldn't be at this discussion table. I think for many, this feeling of belonging sometimes relates to sort of individual differences and maybe, you know, lack of confidence. You can think about it. But I think what you are talking about, it's not so much about individual perceptions. It's about the environment, that climate that supports differences and supports various uh, personality types. Um, And so you shouldn't blame it all on individual, which I think some people do. Yeah, there's a great Harvard Business Review article on it's it's something titled like stop telling people they have imposter syndrome, because Mm -hmm. what's really happened is, you know, certainly many of us could feel like imposters, but we feel like imposters because the system was not designed for us. Right. Mm -hmm. So we are those square pegs and round holes. And so we feel like we don't belong because we don't most often in the Mm -hmm. systems that were designed for us. And so imposter system is a function of structural isms, Mm -hmm. (laughs) racism, sexism, classism, you know, all the isms. And so we are feeling those doubts. You know, it's a function of our self-efficacy and self-efficacy is, you know, that belief that you can accomplish a task. But mm-hmm. again, that's that is a form of internalized, you know, systemic isms. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the way in which the you know, when we look at the sort of function of oppression, you know, I think of them as four eyes. You've got ideological oppression. Mm-hmm. You've got institutional oppression interpersonal you know oppression and all of those three external forces affect how we think and move through the world and that becomes an internalized oppression and so imposter system imposter syndrome is it's an internalized oppression that we create this unconscious many times unconscious belief of like I don't fit in here I don't belong but mm-hmm. that's because all of the external oppression has already done its job right And then that's why when we look at the number of women and people of color who enter into and then leave STEM Mm -hmm. and engineering, it's more often because of the internalized oppression of those systems, right? Mm -hmm. I'm actually one of those people. I went back into industry after my, uh, or during my doctorate and I thought, oh, I want to make sure that, you know, this is, you know, I want to make sure I'm leaving on my own terms kind of thing. And I went back and I was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, I'm good, right? Like <laughs> I have experienced a world where I can show up and be myself. I don't want to go back into that. And, you know, when we look at why women leave, it's because mm-hmm. they are tired often. Um, two of my biggest mentors from that were uh, leaders at Texas Instruments, one a woman and then one a black man, mm-hmm. both of them left TI at the highest level that they could have achieved. So one was a senior vice president. One was a senior, the first woman senior technical fellow. Mm-hmm. Both of them left in their early 50s. And they left because they were tired. Wanda, I wrote an article about her during my work at Purdue. And she said, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired of being a woman in a man's world. And so she left at the the height of her, you know, what she could have achieved at TI at 53. So I'm done. Art left. He was like, as a black man who had been the first black man to achieve senior vice president mm-hmm. at, at Texas Instrument. It was this sort of an exhaustion of like always sort of performing to these cultures that were inclusive of them. 
And so that is really the call to all of us as contributors, as leaders, as managers, you know, whoever and to whatever level that you contribute. We are all we all have a responsibility to pay attention, to to lead with empathy, to move through this world with empathy, to Mm -hmm. understand the experiences of those people around us and say, what can I do? How can I influence within Mm -hmm. whatever sort of level of power that I have to to change the culture so that more people can show up as their mm-hmm. authentic selves. It's interesting. I even through this conversation feel for myself. It's almost like a therapy session because also somebody <laughs> who, who had an engineering degrees before and this feeling belonging or not belonging. I think to many, it's, it's, it's something that we all feel or we felt at some point. But, but I think the first thing even before making any change, you're just not aware of the fact that that's not okay to feel like that, right? That there is an explanation for that. And I feel like, again, maybe I'll just talk for myself, but I wasn't aware that that's not okay. You're sort of trying to feed in without realizing that maybe, you know, the environment is not supportive of that. And it's not a personal problem, but it's really the, the problem of the environment and how it's structured. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just curious because you mentioned the great resignation and sort of think there's a lot of changes in the workplace and certainly in education too as a result of pandemic, but, but also as a result to the shift to opportunities with remote work, to opportunities with hybrid work. So I guess I'm curious, you know, you, you see, I don't know if you saw a report uh, from Microsoft from this year, the new future of work, where there's an argument that the work is going to stay in the hybrid mode, at least. And we really need to pay attention to uh, to this trend. Do you think it's beneficial for people um, sort of as an opportunity to be to have a greater sense of belonging once you kind of take it out of the face to face in the office all the time environment? Does it give people more opportunities or does it present more difficulties when you go remote? I don't, I don't think that virtual workforces facilitate belonging, but what I do think is they reduce the kinds of microaggressive behaviors that someone experiences on a daily basis Mm-hmm. That makes it less oppressive, right? Um, you know, I read, an, or I, ha- I haven't read the article that you're talking about, but I read an article um, that was particularly about black women returning, not wanting to return to the workforce mm-hmm. because of the, you know, when when I, we're sitting here in our home offices, yes. there's there are way less microaggressive behaviors that we experience on a daily basis. Surely they still exist, right? They're still mm-hmm. in our video calls. They could still be in our emails. They can still be in how we, you know, steward and advocate and support other people. But there are lots of the sort of less, I mean, there are, there, there aren't the sort of water cooler moments, right? Mm-hmm. Of, yes of all of the sort of oppressive kinds of behaviors that happen both interpersonally, you know, the institutionalized, the ways in which ideologies have been institutionalized in our organizations, those things are still there, but it reduces the interpersonal oppression that a person experiences on a daily basis. And so I do think that we have a responsibility to begin to, you know, make sure that we're creating cultures and climates whether they're virtual, hybrid, or otherwise, where, you know, where we're facilitating belongingness, 
But I think that just in and of itself, a hybrid workplace, a virtual workplace, it doesn't just create belonging. It just reduces those interpersonal oppressive kinds of behaviors and interactions that makes the job more palatable. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'd like to turn our attention to facilitating belonging. And um, you have the inclusive leadership development model, right? And uh, I just wonder if you can maybe walk us through some of the steps in this model to understand, you know, if, if you are a leader in engineering workplace, I mean, not even necessarily engineering only, what are the steps you can start taking to, to change this workplace environment? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all of the resources related to inclusive leadership are on my website, engineerinclusion.com slash ILD. Um, So again, engineerinclusion.com slash ILD. And on that page, you'll see a link to my TED Talk on inclusive leadership. You'll see a reflection and discussion guide related to that. And you'll see the inclusive leadership model. And we also have an article book slash book chapter that came out on the Mm -hmm. model that you can read more. And and then there's also a sort of a quiz assessment tool related to, you know, it's a strengths based growth continuum to help you assess where you are on that. Mm -hmm. And so this model was really um, it was created as I pulled from the engineering ABAT standard. So that's Mm -hmm. the accrediting body for engineering institutions, um, higher institutions of higher ed. Um, I pulled from some previous inclusive leadership models, and then I also pulled in some of the K-12 engineering habits of mind. And so I aligned these three things to come up with this inclusive leadership development model. And it is an iterative process. You are never done. You, ne- mm-hmm. you don't start with one and end with the other. You're doing all the things at the same time. Um, but really, this model, it's there are four parts. Mm-hmm. And um, but there are seven components. And so the first part, it starts with you. It's it's understanding who you are and your identity. It's recognizing um, your positionality, which is your sort of social your identity as it relates to sort of the broader social context. Um, and I have some resources on my website if you're curious on understanding what your mm-hmm. positionality is. But really, we have to understand who we are and how we move through this world. And we have, and that starts with looking at and reflecting on our own lived experiences. And so what, you know, what this looks like is, you know, what it doesn't look like is somebody saying, I'm just here to do a job, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm tired of having to be politically correct, or I don't have culture, or I'm not biased. Those kinds of statements are not mm-hmm. reflective of, you know, practicing inclusive leadership Mm -hmm. and really looking at and understanding yourself. Um, So again, on my website, there are some specific strategies for Mm -hmm. each of these different levels that your listeners can dive into. The second part of the model is a lens and that's recognizing how you see the world, right? How you are looking at and moving through the world. Mm -hmm. And there are two parts to that. The first is systemic oppression or systemic thinking. And what that means is, is that we have to begin to understand the ways in which systemic oppression happens. And that's particularly important for people from dominant groups because Mm-hmm. And for me, even though I am a marginalized population within engineering, I am still a white woman and I mm-hmm. was raised in a way that so much of the world and its systems was built for me as a white person. And so it's harder for me to understand systemic oppression 
because mm-hmm. I'm not facing it in the same way that someone from another marginalized identity will be. And so having this lens means I have to learn to see. I always think of it of like, how am I building like sort of Superman x-ray vision mm-hmm. so that I can look out into the world and see the ways in which oppression has been institutionalized and structurally built into the ways in which we operate. And I have to do that because if I don't do that, it's I'm not going to be able to see the ways mm-hmm. in which other people are being affected by that. And then the second part of our lens is building is sort of creating this ethical dilemma of bias. Mm-hmm. So understanding our own selves, that's the first part individual like that's understanding hey i have bias and recognizing what are the biases that i have um so if you have a brain you have bias if you don't have (laughs) Mm -hmm. bias it means you don't have a brain so think about that right um but this ethical dilemma of bias it means that we are we take the notion of bias and how it shows up both interpersonally and institutionally and we take it seriously right bias Mm -hmm. is an ethical dilemma that we have to address and we have to recognize the importance of that. And so again, that takes a powerful developed and, you know, consciousness to begin to see the ways in which systemic oppression occurs, the ways in which that creates biases that affect and discriminate and prejudice against marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what this does not look like, it does not look like people saying things like women just aren't interested in tech careers or, uh, or saying things like they just don't, they just mm-hmm. don't succeed yeah. in that type of role or they didn't ask for more. So that really goes to the sort of pay gap issue. And then the third part of the model, uh, is our, are our practices. These are things that we do, mm-hmm. things that we practice again, just like learning to play golf or learning to garden or learning to do whatever it is that you learn to do. You have to practice these things. Mm-hmm. So there are two parts to this model. And so two parts to this uh, piece. It's a human-centered approach. And so a human-centered approach means that we are working from an asset or a strengths-based mindset where we are recognizing and celebrating the value of diversity, the value of the differences that people bring. Um, and so we are leading with empathic curiosity and open-minded open-mindedness that allows us to truly strengthen the dignity of all of the humans around Mm -hmm. us. Part of these practices is becoming an accountable lifelong learner. And I Mm -hmm. like to sort of break these into two pieces. So first, accountability is so crucial being an inclusive leader. We have to be accountable to our mistakes because we're going to make them, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Make mistakes and we have to own up to them. Um, and being a lifelong learner means that you are continuing to learn about other cultures, other ways of knowing and doing and being and operating, and that you're beginning to employ those other ways of knowing and doing and being in your workplace or in your classroom. And so what this does not look like is language that says something like, that's not how we do it, or that's not what I meant. Um, or it's also saying like, you know, I have a black friend. There's no way I can be racist. Like that is mm-hmm. not what this looks like, folks. Right. Um, or saying things like don't be so sensitive. That is not humanizing. That's not being accountable to the language that you're using. Um, and then the last part of the model, the fourth part is, are the outcomes. It's what we can expect. But they are, again, still a function of our practices that when we employ all of these different pieces, there's two parts mm-hmm. here. 
The first is culturally intelligent communication. And then the last is inclusive collaboration. So an inclusive leader is attentive. They mm-hmm. are attentive to whose voices, which voices, values, and ways of knowing and doing and being are present, missing, or silent. And so this takes a true global listening skill of always paying attention to what's being said, what's not being said, what's being done, what's not being done, who's present, whose voice is maybe here but not being heard, right? Mm-hmm. We never want to use language that says, I'm giving voice to the marginalized. Listen, marginalized folks have a voice. We just need to make room for those voices to be heard, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then the last part is this inclusive collaboration. So an inclusive leader is actively, intentionally, and equitably engaging diverse perspectives, experiences, and backgrounds so that you can enrich the collectively shared experience and, and environment. And what's so important too here is recognizing that there is a balance among the ways of knowing and doing and being, right? Because you're never, you don't want a group of all the people who all love the same things. It doesn't mean that, it means paying attention to the ways in which you operate. So you're, you're paying attention to the dominant culture. How are you making sure that that's being balanced with some of the, the cultures from the non-dominant groups? How are you bringing in those ways of knowing and doing? And so, you know, these four parts and the seven components mm-hmm. all together, this is, again, iterative. You're doing all the things at once, um, and we have to continue to learn and grow through this. And so I encourage um, your listeners to download. There is a reflection tool that allows you to think about, well, where do I fit on this? And I built a or designed a strengths-based growth continuum. Meaning it's not meant to feel punitive. It's meant to mm-hmm. sort of recognize how am I contributing? How am I leading? And, and also like an inclusive leader, a leader isn't just someone who has power, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like a manager, right? All of us can be inclusive leaders, even if you are not in a position of management or something like that. Mm-hmm. These are skills all of us must learn to enjoy. And yeah. something I continue to learn to practice and employ and certainly mess up lots of times. No, that, that's great. That's very interesting. And also to mention, we will provide the links to your website with the resources and the TEDx talk as well and anything else that could be relevant on our website as well. Megan, it's very interesting. i trying to think you take, I don't know, maybe a small size company, 30 employees, say engineering company, and I was just curious how would that what would the training look like, say using this model? Because I could imagine that this is not typically like a one time workshop for a leader, but you need some time to absorb it, to test it. And I guess my question is, what would the training look like? And also do you need a training for the employees who should become perhaps part of this conversation and maybe provide some feedback? What do you do around that? So people kind of know what to expect and what they want and not just come and, and, and listen to whatever is, is told to them. So they become active participants in, in building this inclusive environment. Yeah. So the, the original book chapter and what sort of what spawned all of this was written mm-hmm. for 
engineering leadership courses within mm-hmm. higher ed. Um, because if we don't train up engineers that are going to employ these practices, yeah. we're, we're never going to change the culture of engineering, right? We need to be putting mm-hmm. people into industry with these skills and with the, the you know sort of journey of moving through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to train new employees. Um, we also need to train certainly the and employees that that are around us. Um, what I have found is that, you know, as you said, this is never a one hit kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. not like I can come in and do a one hour keynote and the, the world has changed. So I always encourage my clients to and, and what I typically do are some kind of series of events. Mm-hmm. So it allows us to begin to create a shared vocabulary. It allows us to create some communities of practice where people who are most interested in employing these kinds of things begin to build community and, you know, sort of a, a, an improve, a networked improvement, you know, community mm-hmm. where we can learn and grow and hold each other accountable in that. Because the truth about this work is that I can read all the books I want. I can listen to all the podcasts and follow as many people on Twitter. But there are still some moments where I have huge blind spots and that that I benefit from the gracious gift that someone gives me to say, hey, I don't think you realize the ways in which you are sort of showing up. And so that's really why we want to build a shared vocabulary and a community of people who can practice and move through this. The second thing, you know, for companies and and engineering professors mm-hmm. to think about is how are we holding our students and our employees accountable to these values? One of the key parts in the book chapter that we wrote on was the sort of hidden curricula and hidden curricula or null curricula or whatever you want to describe it as is, you know, we make choices about what we evaluate people on. We make choices about what we choose to teach um, what we choose to talk about and what we choose to highlight and honor. And when we don't put forth this notion that we expect our employees to be inclusive collaborators and culturally intelligent communicators, if we don't prioritize those kinds of behaviors, then people aren't incentivized to care because mm-hmm. we're saying it doesn't matter. And so we have to change our institutions and our organizations and the ways in which we operate to begin to build in expectations for how we operate together. Another thing here is that, you know, we I can teach the inclusive leadership model um, you know, and, and I do that with lots of clients. But what's so important, and usually that inclusive leadership development model is like an introduction. It's like, hey, here's this model and way mm-hmm. of moving through the world. And then our follow up workshops are on here are practical tools and strategies that you can employ on a daily weekly basis mm-hmm. that allow you to employ these practices and hold each other accountable, again, building those shared vocabulary. And I have tons of resources on my website with mm-hmm. tools, free tools and resources that people can employ, whether in the classroom, whether in the workforce, to begin to employ some of these practices. You have to have something tangible that says mm-hmm. a tangible reminder if you're not thinking about this all day, every day, like mm-hmm. like I do, right? So. That's great. That's very helpful. And, you know, I guess also just have a question following what you just said. You also mentioned, you know, educators, engineering educators. And, you know, Nicole and myself think a lot about the first year engineering classes. And obviously that's focused a lot on teamwork and developing uh, teamwork skills. And I was just wondering what could be done at this level, some of the maybe practical one or two things that instructors can start integrating right away to help educate 
engineering students early on how to be in the kitchen, how to be, you know, in their classroom and inclusive leader. Well, I encourage all educators to read the book chapter. It's really short. um, And we'll include the provider. And in the article, and certainly I have it listed on my website, too, there are specific strategies that you can employ in the classroom because that Mm -hmm. book chapter was written for educators. And there are specific strategies and things that you can employ in the classroom. And so I encourage uh, people to read that. And and it's not just in the classroom. You know, also, I have specific strategies for how you can, you know, incorporate this into your team culture, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, in an engineering industry kind of workforce. Um, and so there are lots of strategies. I can't give you just like one or two. But, um, you know, I think the most important thing is that we evaluate that which is important to us. Mm-hmm. And so it means that we as as educators, we have to model these practices and we have to be lead authentically and transparently and, and try to make as many teachable moments as we can. And that really simulates the importance of this model, right? Because mm-hmm. there's never this moment in which we've accomplished it. We've never reached a pinnacle of full enlightenment. You know, mm-hmm. we are always building a social consciousness and a social uh, awareness. And so we have to model those moments. And and when we model them, it's we are humanizing ourselves. We are humanizing the learning experience. And so I, I've met so many, particularly educators who are, you know, they want they want to have a greater example of this. But there there's a fear that of that vulnerability of showing up and saying, like, hey, I don't know all of this stuff. Right. And that is exactly the kind of leader that we want, the, exactly the kind of educator that we want that shows up and says, y'all, I don't understand all of this stuff. I don't even understand the constructs of race and gender, but mm-hmm. I know it's important. And we're going to talk about that because that is part of our lived experiences in our lives. And we are going to learn these things together and employ them. That's what we need people to do. We need people to show up and be vulnerable and say, hey, this is hard for a lot of us, particularly those of us who are from dominant groups. Mm-hmm. We have in many ways been conditioned to not talk about these things. We've been conditioned to be colorblind mm-hmm. um, and we're conditioned to not understand that we ourselves have our own identities and cultures. And mm-hmm. so I just encourage educators to themselves begin to move through this process of, of wokeness, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this social awakening as understanding and building a social consciousness and really practice uh, and model this to our students. And I think probably just to, to have this learning mindset about that, right? That, like I said, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily like to talk about it or want to kind of move away from the discussions. But if we have an open mind and the learning approaches. I think that could be a good modeling to students as well. Megan, you know, I was just curious, coming back a little bit to the remote work and hybrid work and maybe use some of the digital tools. I was wondering in the aspects to communication, um, and this is something more of interest of my own research. Do you think that say, you know, for example, use of text-based interaction or other tools, do they allow for greater engagement and greater inclusivity of people's opinion or not necessarily? I don't know if you found anything that the use of digital tools can can support that better. 
You know, one of the things I remember, we, what we share in common is that we both went to Purdue yeah. engineering education. And one of the things that I learned from some of our professors there was they created back channels for, you know, talking about and writing about different things in our classes. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has never like been shy to share my opinion, it was annoying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, now you're going to you know, take a whole grade letter of my of my class and now I have to go write and read stuff. But in hindsight, and what I learned in that process is that that sort of digital part of our class, it created an inclusive space for people who were maybe not where English wasn't their first language. Mm-hmm. It created space for people who were maybe a little bit introverted and shy, people who weren't feeling included in the classroom. That's where they shined. And mm-hmm. I loved that. So what started out as really annoying was like, oh, wow, oh my gosh, look at what, oh, what are these amazing ideas that people are sharing and that they weren't sharing in the classroom. And so if I think I understood your question correctly, yes, I think that there's potential mm-hmm. for sort of digital text-based, you know, ways in which we contribute can allow for people to share their ideas. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to, as a as a group, you know, in a class or on a team to stop and say, hey, Natasha, you've been really quiet. What do you think? And make space and like, wait. And if you say, hey, you know, give me a minute and come back to me, then we come back, right? Like, we still have that responsibility. But, you know, we can also have these other kinds of ways where people can contribute. So I think for educators, that's really a powerful tool. Um, that was particularly Dr. Alice Polly employed that mm-hmm. in our philosophy of engineering education class that I thought was really powerful. It made space for people to contribute in unique ways. Thank you. And I know we need to wrap up soon. Just uh, one question in conclusion. What would you like to see the future of engineering workplace look like? Uh, If we we work hard on it, (laughs) what's your kind of ideal um, scenario? I would love a workplace where people feel like they belong, where they feel valued and affirmed, where they can show up as their true authentic selves. Um, in order for that to happen, that means all of us, even the marginalized, all of us have to lead um, intentionally engineer inclusion for those around us. We need to build global listening skills. We need to build, a, you know, that empathy and that human centered approach so that we can begin to practice and employ these kinds of things and in, in the work that we do. And when we do all of these things, we're going to have more creative and innovative solutions. We're going to have all people showing up. We're going to remove those shadow jobs that people are having to do because they can show up and be so creative and brilliant, you know? And so that's the future workplace that I want to see is that where, you know, the ideologies of the dominant groups don't overshadow and marginalize and oppress the identities of those for whom have been traditionally excluded. And so in order for us to do that, we have to recognize our ideologies. We have to begin to to sort of move through the world in a less judgmental kind of way. We need to practice empathy and vulnerability so that we can facilitate belonging for those around us. I think that it is possible, right? I mean, if I didn't believe in change, I wouldn't do this work. Um, but I do think that's going to take us being kind and gracious. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are very staunch in their beliefs. I think that we've seen this sort of hyper visibly over the last few years, particularly through the previous presidential administration. But what 
And so that has always been there, but it has certainly highlighted it and it gave people Mm -hmm. more voice and power to think that they could not care about equity and inclusion for other people. But we have and and many of those people are in a space where it's like asking someone who shows up into a class to learn like algebra. We're going to ask them to do differential equations on day one, right? There are many people who have no social consciousness, no social awareness, and that we have to practice some patience and helping them to learn some of these things. It doesn't mean that we are pandering to the dominant groups, but we have to recognize the sort of cognitive dissonance that's going to happen for people who have had no social consciousness and no understanding in the ways in which systemic oppression has happened and introduce them to that. And so we have to be kind and gracious to everyone. Um, it doesn't mean that if you're being oppressed that you have to stand up to that. It means that those of us who are not being oppressed stand up for others. And so, again, I just believe that change is possible if we are intentionally engineering inclusion wherever we go. Megan, thank you. That's great. So, and thank you so um, much, Natasha. Yeah, thank you for your time. And like I mentioned, that we will provide links to your company as well to some of the resources where our listeners can go and find the tools that they need to start making a change <laughs> in their classrooms and in their workplace environments. 